The views and discussion expressed on this program do not necessarily represent those of the hosts of the program. WMKV, Maple Knoll Communities, WLHS, the Lakota Local School District, or staff and management. The information and advice presented are educational in nature and not intended to be taken as specific legal, accounting, or other professional advice. Always consult with your own legal, accounting, or other professional before making any investment. Welcome to Real Life Real Estate Investing, a show to help you gain financial freedom by investing in real estate. Brought to you by the Real Estate Investors Association of Cincinnati and the Ohio Real Estate Investors Association. You're listening to Real Life Real Estate Investing on WMKV, WLHS, and the Maple Knoll Radio Network. And now your host, Vena Jones-Cox. Good afternoon. I am Vena Jones-Cox, and this is Real Life Real Estate Investing where particularly this week, we will work very hard to make sure that you have the information and inspiration you need to start or grow your own real estate investing business. Why particularly this week? Because it's question and answer week, which means that I do not have a guest to help me fill up the time. Or to put it another way, maybe you're the guest. Maybe everybody who has a question is a guest on question and answer week. We're looking for your questions on any aspect of real estate investing, from buying to financing to selling, renting, uh, whatever you feel like you need to know. You can call in with your questions at 877-772-9658, or you can send them via email to askvina at gmail.com. That's A-S-K... V like in Victor, E-N-A, at gmail.com. By the way, you can send emails to that email address at any time during the week. You don't have to wait until the show's on or until until it's question and answer week. I kind of uh, store them in this little folder on my computer called Radio Show Questions and then answer them uh, whenever there's an appropriate guest or it is Q&A day here on Real Life Real Estate. While we're waiting for the questions to come in, let's talk about some stuff that's going on here in the area. Uh, tomorrow night is Cincinnati RIA's first meeting for the month of August, and it's about notes and mortgages, and not the way you usually think about them. Not in the sense of buying and selling paper that already exists, but in the sense of creating your own notes and mortgages so that you can, and here's the important part, offer more money on properties. You can offer more money on properties if the seller agrees to carry back a note and mortgage, right? Because it's worth more to you because you got some financing. And that's the topic of the uh, 7.30 main meeting. The guest is Andy Werner, who is coming all the way from Phoenix, Arizona, to share his experience with us. And he has a lot of experience. That guy's done like 4,000 deals. 4,000 deals. Can you imagine? Uh, so anyway, you can download a free guest pass for that meeting at uh, CincinnatiRia.com. The early meeting is a note, uh, a note buy, sell, trade session where folks who have notes will come and uh, talk about what they would take to sell them. And if you are looking to buy notes, you will be able to get up and say, this is the kind of note I'm looking for. And we're going to prove that the 
note market is alive and well here in Cincinnati. CincinnatiRia.com for more information about that. Y'all know that you can listen to all of Real Life Real Estate Investing's past programs for like the last six years. There were hundreds of them up at realliferealestate.com, right? I get that question all the time. People send me an email and say, I missed the show today and I was really interested in hearing about whatever the show was about. Uh, Is there a recording of it somewhere? Yes. It's at realliferealestate.com. It is Dave here at the station's entire job to make sure that those get posted every week. (laughs) Actually, I assume he has some other job, but I only see him once a week and we're always talking about posting the shows. So uh, he works very hard on that. And uh, you can look at the archive and just listen to Real Life Real Estate all day long just by listening to the past shows at realliferealestate.com. It's question and answer week. Uh, 877-772-9658 or uh, askvina at gmail.com. Got a question here from Mario titled posting wholesale deals on MLS. I've heard a couple of wholesalers mention that they post their deals on the MLS to find buyers. Do you know the implications of doing this? Is it legal? And you know, Mario, that is a question that gets answered differently in different parts of the U.S. Uh, there are a zillion local MLSs uh, or local local boards of realtors who have MLSs that they own and that their members can post properties on. And I've I've seen a number where, yes, as long as you disclose that what you're selling is a contract or an option and not a property. They don't seem to have any problem with uh, allowing people to post deals that way because what they're they're posting, of course, is not the property because they don't own the property. What they're posting is the note, the the contract, whether it's a a purchase agreement or a mortgage. There's other places that I've had students try and do that and they were just told, you know, we that's against against the rules here in this MLS. I think a question that you need to ask is whether or not uh these wholesalers are closing their deals first because that's a that's a pretty common strategy especially in areas where the market is still very hot uh to go ahead and buy the deal and then maybe clean it up a little bit, you know, it's called prehabbing, and put it immediately back on the market out out to the public instead of just to your buyer's list. Because properties that are made available to sale to the public right now sometimes go for prices that your sophisticated buyers would never pay in a million, billion, kajillion years. So some of the high-volume wholesalers out there who are really honestly more... They're, they're, they're less wholesaling and more just arbitraging the market uh, are using that strategy to be, you know, completely safe within the rules. They close the deal. They put it up on MLS as their own property. So that might be a question you would want to ask the wholesalers who are telling you that. It's question and answer week here on Real Life Real Estate Investing. The questions are coming in hot and heavy at askvina at gmail.com. You can get yours in there, too, uh, if you, you know, go ahead and ask one. Uh, We're going to take a quick break and we'll be back right after this. 
Welcome back to Real Life Real Estate Investing. It's question and answer week here on Real Life Real Estate and are taking any questions that you have about real estate investing, you know, here at the station right now, live. If you're listening on Wednesday at approximately 5 18 p.m. It's live. If you're listening on the podcast, it's not live. But that doesn't mean you couldn't still send in a question. Uh, send in a question either by calling it in at 877-772-9658 or alternatively by sending it to askvina at gmail.com. A uh, question from Michael about personal property trusts. It says, what would concern you about using a personal property trust as a buyer and the name of a real estate investment operation? Why is an LLC better? The trust seems to offer more privacy. I am just a lowly overworked, underpaid, underloved agent for the trust. So uh, first of all, Michael, I think you might be conflating uh, personal property trusts with land trusts because I'm not an attorney, and you should definitely check with an attorney before you make any move in this direction. But my understanding is that personal property trusts are used to hold things like mortgages and notes, not real estate. Real estate would be held in, in a land trust, which is, uh, when you when you look at a personal property trust and a land trust, they look super similar, except that one of them is meant to hold real estate, and that's the one with the word land in the name. Secondly, uh, the problem with a land trust, uh, th 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 let me say it this way, the reason an LLC has some advantages over a land trust is that a land trust and a personal property trust too, if that is in, case, in fact what you meant to say, uh, don't actually provide any liability shield. LLCs, corporations, uh, formal state blessed uh, entities like that, uh, actually, if you, if you set them up right and run them right, put a layer of protection between whatever is in that LLC, i.e. your risky rental property, and what is outside of it, i.e. your house, your car, your bank account, your stocks, your bonds, your other rental properties. Land trusts do not do that. They are simply a way of deeding a title to a trustee. Now, the thing that you mentioned is that they do, again, if set up right, uh, provide privacy. But if you're going to be the trustee of a land trust, that you are also the beneficiary, the privacy thing is kind of wiped out because the first person that anybody's going to go after in a even a nuisance lawsuit is going to be the person whose name is on the title and if you're the trustee that's going to be you as trustee and there will be no asset protection for you either as the trustee or or as the owner so the way that most people do this is the the property is deeded to a land trust but the beneficiary of the land trust is an LLC. That way you kind of get the best of both worlds, unless, of course, you decide to be the trustee of it, in which case, again, you know, when I see a, when I see a property that says, Michael, mm, trustee, I'm not going to read your last name out loud on the radio, uh, I assume that he is, in fact, the owner of the property because that's what I find like 80% of the time. And I think... You know, most people and most attorneys who know anything about land trusts are kind of on to that. Um, so a land trust plus an LLC, 
might be what you are looking for. And I'm not sure why you think that it's harder to discover the owner of an of a of a an LL, the beneficiary of an LLC or of a land trust than it is to find the owner of an LLC. Uh, I know a lot of people when they file their LLCs, they put their names on it, they sign it, that information goes to the state capitol, it gets filed, anybody can see it. But you know, you do not have to be the statutory agent or even the incorporator on your own LLC. You could have your attorney do that and then nobody will know who you are if that's what you're trying to trying to accomplish. But thank you for your thank you for your um question, Michael. It's a good question. Um, let's see, what is this? <laughs> for some reason, this question came out, typed out like a haiku, like all the words are lined up along the left. What are the biggest challenges in the real estate investing business for median and higher priced houses, buying with owner financing, lease options and selling on lease option? I'm not sure what the question is what are the biggest challenges in the, oh the terms biz in other words buying with owner financing lease options and selling on lease option well I, I I think whenever you get into that kind of creative terms the biggest problem that I see is not with the strategy itself and I and I'm, I don't care which one you're talking about I don't care if it's owner financing subject to lease options it's that people get, and I mean investors, get into these deals with a 25 or 30% understanding of what they mean legally and tax-wise and in terms of what happens if you default and um, uh, of understanding the actual numbers of the deal. And they, they get very excited because they've done a creative deal. They found a, a willing seller and they have put together terms and done it, you know, with little or no money down and no qualifying. And, you know, they're, they're very excited about that. But then when they get into the reality of then owning that property, they realize that they didn't, they didn't set up their, their lease option on the buy side in such a way that they could evict the tenant in the lease option on the sell side. Or they bought a property subject to an existing loan with a principal interest tax and insurance payment of 1200 a month on a property that rents for 1400 a month and they 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 assumed they were going to make $200 a month and they instead find themselves losing $50 a month because they didn't understand that there's more expenses in owning a rental than just principal interest taxes and insurance or they um they then can't make the payment on the uh, the deal that they agreed to buy subject to the existing loan. And so they go to the bank and try to negotiate a short sale because, I mean, they're the owners of the property after all, without understanding that the 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 loan is still in the name of the person you bought it from and you cannot negotiate a short sale on somebody else's behalf and if you do you're messing up their credit and that is completely the wrong way to go about fixing a problem where you can't make a payment so it's these it's these nuances right they learn broad strokes by watching youtube videos or something and they go that's the greatest thing i ever heard of and then they don't understand 
the potential pitfalls or the evaluation or it, it's it's you know it creative finance isn't so complex that you got to be a genius to understand it but you got to study it to understand it and studying it is not going to happen by you know watching videos or something so those are the those are the biggest challenges i see i don't i don't think it's particularly difficult to uh buy uh, let me say it's it's no it's no more difficult to buy deals with seller financing lease options etc than it is to buy them cheap for cash uh and as the market slows down it gets even easier it's not a big deal it's not a difficult thing to sell a property on a lease option if that's what you're looking to do uh if you've priced it right and the rent payment is reasonable and it's an attractive property it's it's more that people want it to be simpler than it actually is and i'm sorry it's just not so a uh, question here from george in louisiana <laughs> apparently uh, george from louisiana has a property under contract and the owner also has the owner has a house across the street needs a new roof because a tree limb fell through it <laughs> okay she is willing to give me the house I have under contract free of charge if somebody will put a new roof on the second house. She's willing to give the house I have under contract to someone free of charge if they will put a new roof on the second house so they can move into said house. Is it possible for me to get any type of fee for said deal? Um, okay, so there's there's... Two properties, both owned by the same owner. This is how I'm, I'm trying to explain this to myself, George. There's two properties, both owned by the same owner. One of them needs a new roof, and it sounds like more than just like shingles. It sounds like there could be some structural damage from the tree having fallen, the tree limb having fallen through the roof. And she is willing to basically give one of the houses away to get a new roof on the second house is is what i'm understanding here and you're asking if there's any way to get any type of fee for this deal uh i don't think you need to get a fee i think you need to get the first house that she's willing to give away under contract for zero and you need to then find out what it's going to cost to put a roof on the other house and then you need to sell house number one for enough to for you to have the roof put on and also, at the same time, get some money for yourself. Now she's, she's thinking she's going to make a trade. And that's going to be a little difficult to put together. I mean, I, like, I, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't want someone to put my, a roof on my house who wasn't getting paid to do that because I wouldn't trust the work that they were doing. Like, I wouldn't want to pick the roofer. I wouldn't want to ha just have the roofer who's willing to do it for free to get the house across the street. So in, the thing to do here is not, you know, look for a fee for getting a roof on her house. It's to figure out how you can get the roof put on her house, get the house here for free, and make some money off of it even over and above the cost of the roof, if you understand what I'm saying. So interesting situation, though. And I appreciate your question, George. A uh, question here from Roberto. And Roberto, I got to tell you, 
this question made my heart go pitter-pat to the point where I forwarded it to Pete Fortunato and Bill Cook because Pete's the guy who originated the term you use in here, and they are going to be so thrilled that you're using the term estate builder. We talked about this on the show, I don't know, two months ago when Pete was on about how estate builders are people who have some assets and are looking to get enough assets that the assets, the income from the assets can pay their entire way of life. And you you got the term and used it. That's great. So the question is, I'm currently in the estate builder phase of real estate investing. If you had to start all over again, what would you do differently to help expedite the journey toward financial independence? I want to quit my job, but I don't yet earn enough passive income. Well, Roberto, I kind of went the opposite direction. Uh, I didn't have a job starting six weeks after I got out of college. I had a job for six weeks. That's another way of saying. And then I went full on into real estate investing. And I did a lot of um, flipping, did a lot of cash strategy stuff, which was great for lifestyle and not so great for long-term wealth building. So if I had to do that over again, I would have kept more of the properties that I flipped. Uh, and there are certain specific ones that I drive by to this day and go, man, I should have kept that one. You know, that one, that one, that one fits what I now know is my sweet spot for rental properties. And I should have just found a way to hold on to it. Your problem is kind of the other way around, though. You are acquiring properties, but you don't you don't have enough of them yet. Or maybe you do have enough of them, but you need to get them paid off before they cash flow enough for you to live on entirely. Uh, first thing I would do is I would I would do a spreadsheet and figure out what that number is. I mean, if you if you own 10 to 15 properties and they're in pretty decent areas, you may find that you don't need more properties. What you need is to pay off the ones you have. And that makes you closer to the way my father did things, which was he kept he kept his job. He had a really good professional job and he kept it until he had so many properties. And when I say so many, I'm talking about he at one point had like a hundred single family homes, which is man, you don't want to do that. <laughs> Trust me, you just don't you don't want to own 100 single family homes. And then he quit his job because he needed the job to kind of support the properties, if you will, like, when they were all mortgaged, he, and he didn't have enough of them, he had to like have the job so that if something went wrong, he could refinance the property or he could put a roof on or whatever. And he kept his job a lot longer than I think he would have liked to because he didn't have any cash strategies. So I think the the perfect combination if if you can if you can do both of these things is probably to flip some properties and to the extent possible use that money to pay off the rentals that you really like uh in a more rapid manner than you are right now. Um if I could if I could, you know, go back in time, start again, 22, I know that was only like six years ago, but sort of again at 22, I would, um, I would probably keep one property for every four that four or five that I flipped. 
and I would, I would continue to live like a, like a, you know, a young person who comes out of college and just has a normal job and use most of that flip money to pay off the rentals. And if I had, if I had done things that way, I could have been completely like 100% ready to be an ender by the time I was 35 or 39 years old. Uh, but because I was, I was flipping just about everything. Now I'm playing catch up right now. I'm, I mean, I've got a bunch of rentals, but they're all mortgaged just like yours are. And so I'm playing catch up and just trying to pay off like one every six months from flipping money. Uh, so the, the only other thing I would say is you may find yourself, one of the things that a, an estate builder is doing while they're building their estate is they are figuring out what kinds of properties they like and what kinds of properties they don't like. And if I had still owned everything at, at 39 that I owned at 30, um, I actually would not have been happy with, with that particular mix of properties because I discovered over time that what I really like is like a, a bread and butter type property, preferably in a, in a decent school system and, you know, three bedrooms, but not too big. Don't like big giant houses. They cost a lot of money to turn over and that they're better if they're built after 1940 because they're easier to maintain. And after 1970s, even better than that, but hard to do here in the Cincinnati area. Uh, so you may, you may do some shuffling of the portfolio. Like you may, you may look or look at your stuff and go, that one property is causing me 80% of my problems. And when you see that, sell it. If you're worried about the taxes, exchange it into another property. If you're not selling it for that much more than you paid for it, you don't have to worry about it. Uh, but get, get stuff that you're happy with so that when you truly are ready to quit that job, your life doesn't become a a job of chasing tenants instead. You're listening to Real Life Real Estate in, uh, Investing. It's question and answer week here on Real Life Real Estate. I'm taking questions right now from askvina at gmail.com. I'll also take them at 877-772-9658. We'll be back right after this. Welcome back to Real Life Real Estate Investing. It's the last Wednesday of the month, and that makes it question and answer week here on Real Life Real Estate. We're just going to throw open the lines and see what questions people have. And boy, there is a wide variety of them in my inbox today. We've, we've, we've talked about listing wholesale deals. We've talked about land trusts and personal property trusts. We've talked about how to get from estate builder to ender faster. And now here's a question about Dodd-Frank. Um, this is from Michael. He says, can you still use land contracts to sell a house to a tenant buyer without running afoul of federal regulations? I believe it's called Dodd-Frank. We used to buy property and sell on land contract before Dodd-Frank changed the rules. It became very risky to sell using a land contract for a primary residence. Have the rules changed or been clarified since then? And alternatively, are lease options a good substitute? How long a period or time frame can you offer an option without it becoming a problem? Yeah, so Dodd-Frank is a disaster, um, in my humble opinion. Uh, it was a huge omnibus piece of legislation that was meant to curb some of the abuses that occurred during the height of the last real estate bubble, where um, man paperwork was just straight up being faked 
to get loans. And I don't mean it was being faked by the borrower. It was being faked by the mortgage broker. And, you know, loan terms that were not, that were not, um, achievable <laughs> like like uh, remember the remember the um the option arms where you could decide to pay less every month than what your actual payment needed to be in order to pay off the loan in 30 years and what happened was every month that your payment was supposed to be 1500 and you paid a thousand five hundred dollars was added to the back end of your mortgage and then after seven years or five years in some cases, it would it would change to a fully amortizing loan for the remaining time. So what you had was you started out with a 30-year loan and you ended up with a 21-year loan or 23-year-old 20, year loan that the payments and balance were much, 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 much higher than what you started with. And you know, I don't know how much of how many people who signed those mortgages didn't just straight up didn't understand what they were or and how many of them signed them on purpose because they're like, this is awesome. I'll be able to keep an extra $500 in my pocket every month for the first seven years. And I'll worry about what happens later, later. But whatever, whatever went on, of course, it, you know, roiled the world financial markets when those loans came home to roost. So Dodd-Frank Dodd was, you know, let, let's fix all of this by making more regulation. And the the, the well, one of the problems, we could spend a whole show on the problems with Dodd-Frank, but one of the problems it created was it did not exclude people who were doing installment sales on real estate as opposed to making loans on real estate, Mortgage companies, banks, hard money lenders, people like that, they actually make loans on real estate. They 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 wire some money to the closing and the money goes to the seller and the buyer walks away with a deed and a mortgage, right? A land contract's not a loan. A land contract is an installment sale. You you do not go to the closing and hand your buyer money so that he can buy the house. You go to the closing and you hand your buyer a land contract that says, I'm giving you possession and equitable ownership of this house, but what you gotta do in return is you gotta pay me this much money every month. And if you stop, I'm going to take the house because the agreement is you're gonna make payments and I'm gonna let you have this house. So Dodd-Frank did not, um, did not, say in fact in fact it specifically included people like you and me and anybody else who's selling on a land contract and the issue that that created was that it 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 made individuals who were selling properties to homeowners just as liable for doing the same set of things that Bank of America and Wells Fargo have to do and for the first year or so after it passed, nobody 100% understood what it was that we were supposed to do. It was one of those laws that they kind of passed it and then figured out what was in it and then assigned it to a bureaucracy and said, okay, now write the specific rules now that we've passed the law. And then the specific rules got written and the most of them are, they're, they're very not overcomable, they're very followable, right? Like you have to fully vet your buyer and make sure they can actually afford the monthly payment. And that doesn't mean they're necessarily going to pay it, I guess, but they, they legitimately have the income to afford the monthly payment of the property they're moving into. 
and you have to um, do certain paperwork and you know there's 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 some stuff about it that's not horrible the thing that ground the the market in selling houses on land contract to a halt was two pieces of Dodd-Frank number one is uh, if you're an investor selling a property it's not your primary home you're selling um, you can't put a balloon in land contracts anymore so you're getting into a not a five-year relationship where hey mr. buyer you got five years to pay down on this property you know lower your lower your loan balance and get your credit together and then go to the bank and get a loan we're now doing 10 20 30 year land contracts with those folks because they have to fully amortize you can't put a balloon in the loan the second piece was after your if you're going to do three in a rolling calendar year you have to get a person involved called a licensed mortgage originator and for several years after Dodd-Frank went to an, into effect it was nearly impossible to find a licensed mortgage originator who a understood land contracts and b was willing to tackle them for less than a lot of money on each deal so we didn't sell on land contract for a while because the cheapest licensed mortgage originator we could find was $1,500 for every closing that he had to, doesn't even have to be at the closing, every every package that he looked over. And we were often only getting 900 1200 1500 up front and the market wouldn't bear doubling that so that we could pay the licensed mortgage originator. So yes, we went over to, land, to lease options there for a while. I don't like lease options as well for the buyer on deals where the buyer has to has to do some improvements to the property. I like land contracts better. I think they're fairer to the buyer. But that's where the law has has kind of led us if we don't want to get into 30-year financial relationships with strangers and we can't find a licensed mortgage originator now there are several companies you know yay capitalism there are several companies who've stepped into that void of licensed mortgage originators who would actually handle land contracts and are doing them much more reasonably you know 300 bucks 500 bucks to get one done and make sure you're within the law so that that part has eased up some but I think that Congress ought to rewrite Dodd-Frank and exclude people who are, who are not Bank of America. We did not cause the real estate crisis, Congress. In fact, we were the, pe- were the people who are still able to sell houses to folks who want houses that are under $50,000. Banks can't really do that. They don't like to make loans under $50,000. We're the folks who can find people who have something that they're good at like doing work and trade them their work for a house that they like and get to own and can fix up the way they want to fix it up uh however i don't think that's going to happen there's been several uh attempts to get dodd frank modified and um it has yet to actually happen although i know there's still folks out there working on it god bless them so the the risk in selling on land contract under the new rules is more about how how long are you going to 
have your money in the property without being able to get it back out again because you can't put a balloon in a loan and about violating the rules of Dodd-Frank. Now we've got a, a if you go on to realliferealestate.com and search the podcasts, we've got a, an entire show on what's required to uh, be in compliance with Dodd-Frank. And if you can get into compliance, which again, there's a couple little things, but it turns out it's not that hard. Uh, if you can get into compliance, uh, there's huge demand out there for land contracts, but if you don't want to do that, uh, yeah, lease options are a good substitute for the moment. Uh, there was some there was some argument early on, and this wasn't argument amongst the regulators; it was argument amongst real estate investors about whether or not lease options were going to be affected by Dodd Frank. And so far, it's all quiet on the Western Front in that regard. People were saying, well, what if they decided that a lease option was, in fact, an equitable interest? And then if you read clause number 1183.01, it could be made to apply to lease options. But so far, we have not seen any of that. But I thought I would make you aware, Michael, that that argument had been made early on. Uh, Thanks for your question. We're going to take a quick break. Uh, looks like we looks like we have pretty much all the questions we need for the rest of the show, so I'm not going to give the contact information again. I'm just going to say we will see you right after this. Welcome back to Real Life Real Estate Investing. It's question and answer week here on Real Life Real Estate. Getting lots of questions via askvina at gmail.com, which again is an address that you can send questions to at any time. Uh, they will just be answered here on the show whenever there's an appropriate guest or it's question and answer week. Uh, question from Ron. It's a three-part question. Number one, how would one find a mentor? Number two, are the upfront $1,000 fees, $400 monthly payments, and $200 monthly marketing fees paid to coaches justified? And number three, should investors get a real estate license? Well, Ron, the answer to your question is, number one, it depends. Number two, it depends. And number three, it depends. Uh, finding a mentor is an interesting question because um, I, I, don't, I don't know what you mean by mentor. I hear that question half a dozen times a week. How do I get a mentor? All I need is a mentor. And then when I say, what do you mean by a mentor? I get various answers. I get, well, I just want somebody that I can follow around and and kind of see what they're doing and, and like, you know, bird dog them and understand how they're doing business. And then some people say, I want somebody that will follow me around and make sure I'm doing the right thing. And then I hear people who say, well, I'm just, I'm looking for a relationship where I can from time to time ask questions and other people say, I want somebody's phone number where I can have them on speed dial 24 seven whenever I'm nervous. So uh, it depends on what you're looking for. But once you decide what that is, the very best way to find an experienced, ethical mentor, notice, notice I added some adjectives to your description, is to offer something that they value in return. Now, one thing that they value, as you point out in question number two, is money. 
There are people who are in the business of mentoring and they charge, they have a mentoring program and it's a formal program and the rules should be pretty clearly laid out as to what they will do for you and how you contact them and how often you can contact them and for how long this goes on and all of that sort of thing. And they've just kind of taken a shortcut and said, you know, rather than trying to figure out what 50 different people can do for me, I'm just going to decide how much it's worth to me to pass on my knowledge and information and I'm going to charge it. But, you know, there's probably somebody in your local RIA group who is highly experienced. And I would, I, would, I would really look for somebody with 10 or more years of experience and with lots of deals under the belt. It doesn't have to be a thousand or anything, but dozens at least. Uh, and go approach them and don't say, will you be my mentor? Say, what is the biggest missing piece in your business that I might be able to? to provide you with. And many times they will say things like, oh, I need more leads. I need more deals. I need, I need huge help with my computer or my database or something else that I am not good at and or hate. And if you are able to fill that role, you're able to give them something that they value, bring them leads, for instance, uh, they are generally happy to help you out, right? I mean, when you help people, they want to help you. It's the law of reciprocity. Um, I don't know why more newer investors don't do that. But I, I will tell you that 24 out of 25 times that I am approached by somebody who wants me to quote mentor them, it is, I love you. I admire you. I hear you're the best. They don't really say they love me, but uh, I hear you're the best. And I just, I just really need a mentor. So can you be my mentor? And the honest answer is, I don't have time to mentor every single person who wants to be mentored. Heck, I don't have time to mentor one-tenth of the people who want to be mentored. So the people that I'm really like my ears perk up with, uh, with are the ones who say, I will drive for dollars and bring you a hundred leads a week if you'll give me your cell phone number. And then I, I still set some rules. I say, that's great. I will absolutely pay to market to those leads. I will uh, take the phone calls. And if I, if one of your leads leads to an appointment, I will call you up and you will go along on the appointment and we will talk about how I'm evaluating the property and what I think it's going to be good for and what kind of offer to make and how I'm going to make it. And then I'm going to buy the deal because what you're in this for is mentoring and what I'm in it for it is leads. Uh, so are the, is the money paid to coaches justified? Sometimes, sometimes I've heard of some people who have, hired people for thousands and thousands of dollars and gotten for that a phone room that has a bunch of people sitting at a desk with a book that when you ask a question, they flip through the book and try and find the answer. And if it's not there, they tell you, you don't need to know the answer and you're asking a stupid question. I'm not kidding. I'm not exaggerating. Uh, some coaches are amazing. Like it, it, not only do they have the experience to know the answers to your questions, but if you're actually doing the work, they can help you shortcut a lot of the process. 
Should investors get a real estate license? Um, only after you have done enough deals to prove you to yourself that you are actually going to find that real estate license useful. If you're getting it just to just to get like access to the MLS, it is a huge commitment of time and money. It in having the license in some way hand, in some ways handcuffs you with additional disclosure and liability and whatnot. Uh, I have a real estate license, but I did, did probably 30 deals before I went, you know what, I'm so tired of trying to coordinate my schedule with five agent schedules when I want to go see a property. I just, I'm just going to get a license. It's going to make my life so much easier. And that's what I did. So uh, thank you for your very direct question. A uh, question from... Ryan, my question as someone interested in exploring real estate investing is how does commercial real estate investing financing differ from traditional financing for those of us not doing cash deals? It looks like one needs at least 20% down, but I have no idea about the rest. I don't know what an arm is, hard money lending, etc. Okay, so Ryan, there are there are there are two kinds of financing that real estate investors would typically get. One is from the bank. We, it's 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 not it's sort of conventional financing, um, not in the capital C sense of conventional. But uh, the bank uh, is going to want some things from you as a real estate investor that they would not want from you as a homeowner. They are in fact going to want twenty percent down or twenty five percent down once you get past your first four loans. Uh, they often want uh, adjustable rate loans, which is what ARM means, adjustable rate mortgage. Uh, instead of having a fixed rate for investors, many times they want to charge an, an adjustable rate, which of course has the downside that the rate adjusts, and I would expect it only to go up over the next few years. So your $300 a month cash flow on your rental today might become $150 a month cash flow next year when your rate adjusts upwards. Uh, typically, you will you will be able to borrow eighty percent of the purchase price of a property, not of the value. So it doesn't matter how good a deal you're getting. You're you're going to have to put twenty percent down. Uh, if you go to refinance a property that way, you can generally borrow eighty percent of the appraised value if you've already owned the property for at least a year and it has been performing for a year and the numbers justify the value. The other thing, the other type of financing is hard money financing. And that's, you mentioned that. Uh, hard money financing is not something that you use for long-term holds. It's it's uh, high interest rate, often lots of points up front money. And it's usually like a six to 12 month loan. So it's a loan for either buying, fixing and reselling a property or for buying, fixing and then refinancing a property. Uh, it's called hard money, but it's actually easier to get than bank money. Uh, credit scores don't tend to be as important. Um, personal income doesn't tend to be as important. And then the third option that you've probably heard is private money. Private money is uh, longer term, like three to five year balloons money uh, at a somewhat lower interest rate, like six to eight percent that is provided by private individuals who are just investing their money to get a return on it. There is a show in the realliferealestate.com archive. Look for Alan Cowgill, C-O-W-G-I-L-L. He spends the entire show talking about private money and the advantages of it and how to raise it. 
So appreciate your question and all the questions on Question and Answer Week this week. We'll be back next week with more information to put you on the path to financial independence through real estate investing. Until then, happy investing. Happy investing.